Well, good morning. This morning, we're going to take a look at the third sola. If you recall, we started with a history of the church. Then we looked at sola scriptura. Then the last couple of weeks, sola gratia, by grace alone. And this morning, we're going to look at sola fide, faith alone. Faith alone, this was the battle cry of the Reformation. That a person is saved by faith alone, no acts, no deeds, no works can justify a man. It is by faith alone. And that faith is given to us by what? last two weeks. It is by God's grace. By God's grace we have been given the faith. This this is the main hinge. In fact, I've got a great, great book here entitled The Main Hinge. Faith Alone. Paperback This is what I love. It's all of about 68 pages, (laughs) along with a couple of others there. But this is what our, this is what our, this is what Christianity hangs on, is faith alone. It is the center point of our doctrine. Justification by faith alone. You know, and that brings us to an an interesting question. I think I have it on your handout here. Is we use this term so loosely. We talk about our doctrine and our doctrine of faith. um, And we know what our doctrine of faith is, confession. But the question is, what is doctrine? It's the center point. It's the main hinge which our doctrine rests upon. So how would you define doctrine? We all use it. A set of beliefs. Okay, very good. Doctrine is defined as the entire body of essential theological truths that define and describe describe a message. It's that group of theological truths in Scripture that define a message. And that message is who we are and what we believe in. Doctrine is indispensable to Christianity. Christianity does not exist without doctrine. And the New Testament 
repeatedly emphasizes the value and importance of sound doctrine. Um, in First Timothy and also in Second Timothy, the writer says there's a pattern of ta- a sound teaching. The apostles also defended the faithful proclamation of the gospel with sound doctrine in Galatians 1.8. So just remember that. It's indispensable to Christianity. Christianity does not exist without sound doctrine that rests upon truths of the scripture. Okay? Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah, I think what you once you start exploring Scripture and leading someone to Scripture, and we're going to talk about that in just a moment when we talk about Martin Luther. But I think once you start leading people to Scripture and showing them what really believing in Jesus means... You know, is, is, are you just believing in Jesus because you can get your ticket stamped and you're going to heaven? Or do you believe in Jesus because you have accepted him as your Lord and Savior and you're going to live a life becometh a follower of Christ? It's two different things. Do you have a comment on that? How did you know? Because <laughs> you were looking. Yeah, well, I, no, just to go on with what, what Gail was saying, um, it, it's, um, you, know, you hear, I hear that all the time with uh, college kids, college students, but just people in general, um, and just refer, remembering exactly what you said, we all believe in Jesus, let's just forget about the doctrine, and believing in saying that we all believe in Jesus is doctrine, and so it, it, it's, it's, it's important to recognize that what is it that we're really pushing up against? And what we're pushing up against when people say things like that, you know, they don't want to deal with doctrine, is they're pushing up with the idea that doctrine divides. Mm-hmm. And that has become, um, in some ways, a sacred part of the relative truth aspect of our culture that I don't want to, you know, plant my flag anywhere that's going to, you know, offend somebody or push somebody away. And so mm-hmm. let's just get rid of all the things that, that do that. And doctrine is going to be one of those things because naturally it divides. I mean, we're talking about the Reformation here, right? <laughs> and, it's, and, it, and the question that we're asking then is, is that division worth it? I mean, certainly it's not the goal. We are not seeking to just completely separate ourselves from people. But as it is, this is the natural consequence of planting a flag and saying, I believe this about Jesus. And, you know, ask the martyrs. Hmm. They think it divided. You know, and was this their goal? No, but I think that just that, that is one of the uh, almost untouchables of our culture. 
you know, let's just leave all this stuff out that's going to really step on people's toes. And we just don't live like that in general. There are, there are things that we believe that are all doctrine, whether it's Christian, Christian or not, that we live by, that we're not going to negotiate or sacrifice. And um, at some point, there's going to be difference, and that's okay. Yeah. Very good. I'm sorry. No, go ahead. I just say, because that makes me question, is there a difference between doctrine and practices? Because, like, obviously we baptize infants, but other Christian denominations do not. So would you put that under the doctrine umbrella or just under the practices umbrella? Because I've said many, many times, we tend to focus on what divides us rather than what unites us. Mm -hmm. You know, like Baptists, Presbyterians, Lutherans, Methodists, whatever. Um, you know, so I think about practices like the way we do communion and the way we do baptism and stuff like that. Would you consider that part of doctrine? Um, because it is our belief? No. Would you? Or would well, you? I would, I would answer it like this. I know you're asking him, but I'll, I'll, Well, that's all right. Yeah, uh, I, I would answer it like... It's part of our sacraments. Yes. So this is important with this topic, too. We're talking about... Essential, so <clears throat> ne negotiables and non-negotiables, or non-negotiables, negotiables. Non-negotiables, mm -hmm. non safe alone, right? Way that's practiced, negotiables, you know, sacraments. We're not, we're not, we're not disagreeing that baptism is a sacrament, but we're disagreeing about the mode of it. And some people would say that is a non-negotiable, but it's not. I mean, in, in general, it, it is out in that category of you're not going to not go to heaven because of the mode of baptism. So we put it in the negotiable category. But that doesn't mean that you don't have a conviction that says, you know what, I'm, I, it has now moved into the center of non-negotiable for me, which is more about helping you find a place of worship where your conscience is not being bound. But it doesn't mean that I then put that on somebody else and say, you're not a Christian because you don't believe in this mode. So that's why I would call it negotiable sure. versus non-negotiable. Is that, is that the practice of it? I mean, we have many members in this church that do not believe in infant baptism. That's okay. And then there that, are people who believe that if you're not baptized, you're not saved. That's absolutely. Yeah, so anyway, because, like, you've got the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed that wraps everything we believe up into a package, mm -hmm. but then there are things that fall outside of that. Um, but... So that I'm just wondering what makes denominations different from another, if that's like falling under the, the doctrine thing or if that's like you were talking about negotiables. Yeah. Well, I think, I think what you're saying is, is right. We, we have this doctrine. We're talking about a non-negotiable doctrine. And then where, where denominations come into place is the practice of those things. Okay. And um, there's, there, there's no place within the PCA that says... Um, you know, look, if your practice, if, if this is your non-negotiable, which is faith alone, right, and, and that, that leads you to a couple of things that we don't necessarily think that that leads to, it doesn't disregard the doctrine of faith alone in Jesus Christ. And what you're, what you're also pointing out, which I think is good, is what are we going to focus on? Are we going to focus on how we share in Jesus, having faith alone in Jesus for our salvation? Are we going to focus on the practice of those things? And, you know, some people do. Some people just weigh so heavily on, um, they're, they're called doctrinalists. They just cannot get away from this, the differences. Mm -hmm. Some people are, 
you know, hey, I like talking about these things, but at the end of the day, um, there's more to talk about. Um, and I, you know, maybe it's a good question. What kind of church are we? You know, when people have a class here, on that. Do what? We can have a class on that. <laughs> Yeah, certainly. Certainly. Um, well, that was a good discussion. Thank you for, uh, Gail, no, thank you for opening that up. Uh, well, but, but, but Ryan has a great point in that this was so important, so important to the Reformers that they were li- willing to lay down their life for it and to become martyrs for this. And it continued for, it still continues today. Um, all right, back, back to our notes here. If you look at how the Reformers began, they're talking about sound doctrine. <clears throat> it was a careful exegesis, and that word means to carefully examine critical examination of the scriptures. For Martin Luther and others, it began with Habakkuk 2.4. A little background about Habakkuk. The Babylonians are or have taken the, the Jews, the Israelites, into captivity. Uh, they are being treated horribly uh, as slaves. And finally, Habakkuk asked God, how long is this going to last? How long is this going to last? And he does that with trembling fear. And God replies to him, if you go and read the, uh, the Scripture, he said, write these things down. And in that, he said, in due time, I'm paraphrasing, in due time, I will take care of the Babylonians. Then he says, comes to Habakkuk 2.4, and he says, the righteous shall live by faith. It's the first time we see that in Scripture. But it's so important, it's so important that Paul uses this uh, multiple times in Scripture, in his letters. The righteous, he is quoting Habakkuk, the righteous shall live by faith. Uh, I've got some quotations here by noted theologians on faith alone. Yes. Can I go back on the rabbit trail we were just on? No. <laughs> You know, exegesis, critical examination of the scriptures. One thing about, say, baptism, there's no specific on that in the scripture. I mean, you can interpret one way, 
and it, more people can accept that way. Or you can interpret the other way. But when it comes to faith alone, that seems like it's specific. It's black and white in the scripture. Well, would that be one good discernment of what would be, uh, what do you call it? Negotiable. Thank you. Negotiable, non-negotiable. Sure. That's what I mean. If you took if you took someone back and did a careful exegesis of Scripture, allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. And look at all... We're going to look... I've got a page here on the back, and it is a, it's about a half of the passages that I could have put in here where... Paul says in his letters, you are saved by faith alone. It's not of your works. It's by the grace of God. And you look at all those passages, it's perfectly clear to someone that salvation is by faith alone from a gift of God, by His grace, and not by works. And again, next week we're going to look at faith versus works. We'll look at what Paul says in his letters and what uh, James says in his book. Uh, but we'll get to that next week. Okay, I won't interrupt you. No. Continue. <laughs> Isn't that typical of a wife? I'm through talking for the time being. Now you can continue. And thank you so much. She's added so much to the class already. It, it, it is. Um, anyway, let me uh, very quickly just read these quotes to you. The confession of divine justification touches man's life at the heart. At the point of its relationship to God, it defines the preaching of the church, the existence and progress of life of faith the root of human security, and a man's perspective for the future. This was uh, Burkhauer, a Dutch Reformed theologian and professor. William J. Seymour says, Justification and regeneration are simultaneous. The pardoned sinner becomes a child of God in justification. Then J.I. Packer, The truth is that though we were justified by faith alone, that faith that justifies is never alone. It is always fruit and good works and transform life. Great quotes. Huh? All right, Martin Luther. Romans 1 17 says, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, that it is written, The righteous shall live by faith. As it is written, he's going back and quoting Habakkuk. The righteous shall live by faith. This verse, as Martin Luther read this, it tormented him, it tore him apart. It put him in severe depression for years. <clears throat> then God said to him, through the Holy Spirit, He told him the true meaning of this verse. 
the doctrine of justification and the Catholic Church gave Luther again trembling fear because he knew he could not live up to the righteousness of a righteous God. He couldn't live that life. He thought the righteousness revealed in the gospel in this verse was the condemning righteousness of a just God. Then again, the Holy Spirit opened his eyes. He realized that this righteousness was one that was credited to the elect by God's grace. Not a righteousness that he had to earn. Luther has been quoted saying, This was the happiest day of my life. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and entered paradise itself through open gates. Just the understanding of what that one verse meant. He was not condemned by God's righteousness, but that righteousness was imputed to him. And we'll look again in a few moments of what that really means. But I've got a question for you. Have any of you all read a scripture passage over and over and over? Then at one point in time, the Holy Spirit just opened your eyes and your heart to what that passage really, really meant. You understand what I'm saying? Has that happened to any of anyone? Sherry? Can you can you tell? Would you like to tell tell us? I can't really think of an exact example now, but I have had it happen. It happened, yeah. Gail. Well, it, um, election. Uh, it wasn't one particular verse, but uh, when I was doing one Bible study, the woman knew that that was you know a topic that wasn't always agreed on, that it was a difficult topic. And she said, on things like that, I just sort of put it on a shelf. And as I read the Bible, I look at what's on that shelf a lot. And uh, mm. I love that. And as I read, everything seems to point to that thing on the shelf. So, uh, yes, in, in that way. But not. I don't think there was one particular passage. That you can. Jack? Uh, yeah. It seems to me just about every on their trek to reform theology has had to look at Romans 9 in a different light than what maybe you've been taught before. And so to me, that's just the, you know, that's the neon, whoa, that doesn't say that, does that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, that's not, that wasn't there before. You know, I, 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 somebody put that in there before, you know, since the last time I read through it. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Yes, sir. Uh, on my trek toward the point of theology, it, it, was, uh, it was reading the Bible through uh, repeatedly over the like, like taking a one year through the Bible kind of thing. And uh, but what really solidified it was when I switched one year to a chronological Bible. And, uh, and, and the passages were, were presented in chronological order. Seeing that rhythm of of, uh, of God pursuing and the people uh, disobeying, and when God pursues.
pursuing again and people disobeying and then God pursuing again, bringing them back, bringing them back, and just seeing that that rhythm play out until finally it culminates in Jesus. You know, uh, and it, that really made it fit in my head. That's excellent. Excellent. text or anything that I wrestled with like Luther did, but um, I think in general, coming out of a, what we said, Arminian background, and then moving to a Reformed uh, position, the Bible has just become so much more enjoyable to read as opposed to a burden in one sense where I'm, you know, really thinking I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing and looking at it for ways to figure out how to really continue to improve my walk or to, um, and just missing the central message of, of redemption in there. Um, now it's just the whole, I don't, you know, the whole thing is a joy um, because there's this understanding of what this thing's about. So I'm not just sort of dissecting it, looking for, all right, what am I supposed to do here in this moment? Yeah. Excellent. I think for me, <clears throat> Gail and I, when we became believers, we went to a church, Bible church, Armenian church, and I heard over and over and over that, you know, you're drowning, you can't save yourself, you're drowning, and so God reaches down in that ocean or that pool of water and He grasps you and pulls you up. Then I read Ephesians. No, I'm not drowning. I'm dead. I am dead, spiritually dead. But God, but God, who is rich in his mercy and grace. And that, for me, just, bling, bling, turned, <laughs> that turned, really it did, it turned on the lights. So, but God used this, this passage, Romans one seventeen. To shake the very foundation of an apostate church. And to shake the continent of Europe religiously by these five words. Justification is by faith alone. And again, men were willing to lay down their lives for those five words. For centuries, you've got a little diagram on your handout for centuries the Catholic Church view of justification was faith plus your works results in justification now the Protestant Church is saying faith results in justification and works you're justified, and with those justified, with being justified, God has prepared good works for you in advance. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church did everything they could to rebuke this. There were numerous debates between reformists and bishops about justification by faith alone. One of the most famous took place in April. Okay, that is four years after 
Martin Luther nailed the 95 Thesis on the Wittenberg door. And Luther was summoned to renounce or reaffirm his views when he appeared at the assembly on April 16th. This Johann Eck, and you remember he is the man, Archbishop, who earlier said the scriptures are not authentic except for the authority of the church. Rome tells you what scriptures are authentic and what scriptures are not. Luther was asked to recant his beliefs on justification by faith alone. He went home. He thought about this. He cried over this. He prayed over this. And he came back and these are his famous words. Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the Holy Scriptures or by the evident reasons for I can believe neither Pope nor church councils alone, it is clear that they have erred repeatedly and contradicted themselves. I consider myself convicted by the testimony of the Holy Scripture, which is my basis, my conscience is captive to the Word of God. Thus, I cannot and will not recant, because acting against one's conscience is neither safe nor sound ground. God help me. Amen. In 1545, the Council of Trent met several years later an attempt to squash the beliefs of the reformists and to make the beliefs of Rome even clearer. The council met 25 times over the next 18 years. This went on for a long period. Well, it's still going on, a long period of time. The council became one of the most significant series of meetings in the history of the Christian church. A lot of people are not aware of that, the Council of Trent. Think about this. 25 times over 18 years to rebuke those five words. And you all think it's hard to get something through our session. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. But you took took all the power away from the uh, Catholic Church. Their whole meeting was that. Surviving. I mean, their works. It puts it all in God's hands. Yeah. Everything that they have been saying, the priests can do. Well, here's their their response. Look at these. There's four of many, many responses. If God saith that the justice received is not preserved and also increased before God through good works, but that he saith good works are merely the fruit and the signs of justification obtain, but not a cause of the increase thereof. Let him be an anathema. While Protestants claim the source of life and doctrines of Holy Scriptures, The council rejected this belief and affirmed that the two sources of special revelation are the books of the Holy Scripture, including the Apocrypha, which uh, that includes the teaching of purgatory, prayers for the dead, so forth, and tradition. 
Tradition is what? Tradition is what the Pope says. That's what tradition is. You remember Pope Pius was asked uh, to define what tradition was in the Catholic Church, and his response was simply, I am tradition. But that should take care of it. These <clears throat> declaration anathemas of the Council of Trent have never been revoked. The decrees of the Council of Trent are confirmed both by the Second Council and the Latter Council. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon says on this matter. Any church which puts in the place of justification by faith in Jesus Christ another method of salvation is a harlot. In other words, any church that does that, they're a prostitute church. John Calvin called the doctrine of justification by faith the main hinge on which the door of true religion turns. This doctrine affirms that salvation is by grace alone. Jesus Christ is the Savior. Um, any questions up to this point? I have a few scripture passages <clears throat> to see what Paul's words are on justification and also um, our Lord Jesus, what he says about this. Um, we are really running late because of Gail's question earlier. <laughs> so, so why didn't why won't somebody if you've got your Bible open, read Ephesians four through ten, then uh, two I'm I'm sorry. Thank you. Two, four through ten. Um, somebody else look up uh, Galatians two sixteen. Then someone else, if you would, First Timothy one fifteen and sixteen. Let's look at those three real quick. Ephesians two four through ten. Who would read that, please? But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in. This verse is so, so rich. Let's just Stay here a moment and look at, if you have a Bible, look at these passages and what are the attributes, the character 
of God that you see in these verses. Merciful. I'm sorry? Merciful. Merciful. Loving. Loving. Powerful. Powerful. Gracious. Gracious is grace. Pardon? Kind, Kind, yes. Yes. Kindness toward us in Christ. What else? Creator. Creator. And what did he create us for? Yeah, good works. We are his workmanship. Folks, each one of you are unique and a special child of God. God has created you the way you are. I mean, how how sweet is that? I am who I am because God created me this way. You know, a lot of times I would think, well, I'd like to be like Ryan. You know, nice-looking nice young man, you know, wise, been to seminary, I think. <laughs> <laughs> but then I said, no, God created me in a special way. That's right, baby, he did. Well, he sure did. He did. <laughs> <laughs> I am who I am. Okay, who has the next verse there? Galatians 2.16. Yeah. Um, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Thank you. Can that be much clearer? <laughs> huh? Yeah, it does. They put a twist on it. They're good at spinning. Um, last one, I believe, was First Timothy one fifteen and sixteen. Yes. Last part there, the the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Then lastly, let's look at uh, the story in Luke that Jesus is telling. It's Luke 18, 10 through 14. I will read that. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like this other man, extortionist, unjust, adulterer, or even like this tax collector. He says other men. Then he says even like this tax collector. 
I fast twice a week. I give thighs, tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, will not even lift his eyes up to heaven. But he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me. I am a sinner. Then Jesus says, I tell you, the man that went down to the house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humble, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. How did the Pharisee see himself being justified in this story? By his good works. By comparing himself to others and commending himself. What was the root of his sin? Pride. Pride, which is the root of most all sins, is pride. But what did the tax collector do? Pardon? He was humble and knew that his righteousness came from the Lord only. And how did he physically display that humbleness? Look at the text. He beat his breast. He beat his breast. He could not even look up to heaven. His sins weighed so heavily upon him. This story tells us that opposed to what the Pharisee taught and lived, that the righteous go to heaven, but the unrighteous go to hell. The tax collector was justified. He knew he was a sinner. He knew that by his good works, there were none, that he couldn't go to heaven. That's just an interesting story that he he tells, and that's so much like many of us look at other people and say, I am more righteous than this person. I do better things than this person. I go to church. I teach Sunday school. I'm part part of a... Men's Bible study, ladies' Bible study. God looks where our heart is. Well, we have got no time left. Uh, These last two, Roman numeral number five, we'll look at that beginning of next week. How does sinful man then become righteous? If it's not our own righteousness, whose righteousness is it? Then... How do believers receive this righteousness? Then we'll also look at faith versus works. Then hopefully end up talking a little bit about how the faithful live a life. We're to live a life of faith and not by sight. What does that mean? Okay. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you, Father, for your word. And, Father, we thank you for those men that came before us some 500 years ago, willing to 
stand up to Rome, stand up and declare that justification is by faith alone. Uh, Father, their beliefs were as such they were willing to fall on the sword for it. Father, I pray that we would be of the same heart, that we would thank you daily, Lord, that we are saved not by our own works, Father, but by the works of Jesus Christ, by your abundant mercy and your grace. Father, now would you prepare our hearts that we may go into worship. And Father, we pray that everything we do, say, think, see, would be to your glory. In Christ's name, amen.